You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll read together verses 12 through verse 18. John, chapter 8. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Bow our heads in in prayer as we begin. Our Father, we are grateful again for the clarity of your word and for its self-authenticating nature. It is true, it is true truth, and we thank you that you sanctify us by the truth. Open our eyes to it, we pray. Keep us alert to its precepts and principles and help us to understand this passage that we might appreciate and apprehend such a great Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. It might be a, a bit of an obvious one at first. Can blind men see light? Can blind men see light? No, they can't. Can spiritually blind men see spiritual light? They can't. Now, there is a parallel there between being physically blind and being spiritually blind. You and I might read the New Testament, and I sometimes do this, reading through the Gospel of John, and I think, how, how is it possible that the one who was the light of the world could stand right in front of people who knew the law, and they knew the prophets, and they read Moses every day in the synagogues? And how could they, how could they know all of that and see him and yet still reject him and still be hostile to him? How is it possible that somebody could have so much truth in front of them and yet be seemingly totally oblivious to the reality of what they saw? There's one word explanation for that, and it is blindness, namely spiritual blindness. They were completely spiritually blind. The light has come into the world, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, verse 5. The light came into the world, and the darkness was completely oblivious to it, completely without understanding regarding the nature of light and the reality of spiritual light, because men in their sin are completely blind. Completely blind. Now, a a man who is physically blind might not be able to see, he is unable to see physically, but most, I I would dare say all, physically blind people wish that they could see. They wish they could see the sun and appreciate a sunset. Or a sunrise. And they wish that they could apprehend and, and comprehend and understand the idea of color. They wish that they had enough illumination, enough sight to be able to see the things that are around them that they know to be realities, but they cannot see them. Most people who are physically blind are unable to see, but they wish they could. People who are spiritually blind are in a worse condition, you see, because they are unable to see, and guess what? They have no desire to see. They have no desire for light. They have no desire for truth. 
People who are spiritually blind do not want light. They don't want illumination. The last thing they want is to abandon their iniquity and their sin, to turn from that, to give it up, to divorce themselves from it, and to apprehend the one who is spiritual light. People who are lost and bound in their sin and iniquity do not desire sight. They do not desire illumination. They don't desire freedom from their sin. They love their sin. And in John 3 it says that they love darkness, and they hate the light, and they will run from the light, and they do not come to the darkness because they don't want, or they do not come to the light because they do not want their deeds to be exposed. They do not want it to be revealed who they really are and what they really are all about. And so they stay in the darkness and they hate the light. So men are spiritually blind and they cannot see the one who is the light of the world. The only way that they can do that is if God, by His grace and the power of His Spirit, opens their blind eyes gives them a new nature that can apprehend and comprehend and embrace light and gives them a love for light and a hatred for the darkness. The only thing that, the only thing that can solve a blind person's, spiritually blind person's problem is if God delivers them from that spiritual blindness and changes their nature so that they can see and that they love to see and that they want to see and that when they see the light then they embrace it. That is what, what must happen. Now there is no greater evidence of how blind men respond to spiritual light than John chapter 8 with these Pharisees. If you can count on a Pharisee to do anything in the New Testament, you can count on a Pharisee to oppose Jesus, to hate Jesus, to contradict Jesus, to argue with Jesus, or to somehow insult him. That's what the Pharisees did. They are the perennial adversaries of Jesus. All the times that we see them, with the rare exception of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, all the times that we see Pharisees in the New Testament, we see them opposing Jesus. And so that's what we see them doing in John chapter 8. When Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world, now we see how the Pharisees, blind men, notoriously for being, notorious for being willingly blind. In fact, Jesus called them blind guides of the blind. They were blind spiritually and they didn't want to see, they didn't like the truth, and they opposed Jesus. Now we see how they responded when the light of truth was shined in their face. And it's quite revealing. John chapter 8. So we're going to look at verses 13 today through verse 18. Now we saw last week Jesus' claim to be the light of the world and the significance of that. He was claiming to be deity because any Jew would have understood that the light was the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So the Jews would have understood that to be a claim to deity. Furthermore, the Jews would have certainly understood that to be a claim to Messiahship because he was claiming to be the fulfillment of all that the lamp lighting ceremony in the temple at the Feast of Booths symbolized and portrayed. So in, in the, the wake of his claim to be the light of the world, to offer light so that men do not walk in darkness, how do blind people respond to the light? Verse 13 is the Pharisee's objection, and then verses 14 through 18 is Jesus' response or answer to their objection. We're going to look at both. We're going to actually get all the way through verse 18 today. It's kind of a large chunk, but I think it's better than dividing it up into two, two pieces or two different sermons. Verse 13 is Jesus' objection or sorry, the Pharisees' objection, verse 14 through 18, Jesus' response to the Pharisees' objection. Let's look at their objection. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, do you notice something about their objection? Jesus just said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Claim to deity, claim to messiahship. And what do the Pharisees do? Do they address Jesus' claim at all? the substance of it, the content of it, the subject of it. They address it at all? Not at all. They don't mention light. They don't return to that theme. They're not interested in discussing that. They don't criticize Him for claiming to be the Messiah. They don't criticize Him for claiming to be God. You know what they do do? What they do is they pull out a legal technicality. That's what it is. They embrace a legal technicality. They call Him on 
this legal technicality, you are making a claim about yourself, and because you are testifying about yourself, your testimony is not valid. Now, they're appealing to a basic principle of the Mosaic Law. And the principle was this. It was a well-established philosophy among the Pharisees and the Jews, pretty much all the ancient peoples of that day in that region, that when a man testified about himself, his testimony concerning himself did not carry any weight. It was comparatively really uh, useless. A man could testify about himself or say something about himself, and people did not regard that as authoritative, as carrying any weight at all. And that was kind of based upon the principle in Deuteronomy where any legal matter was established by the witness of two or more people. In other words, when dealing with a legal issue before you made a decision regarding life or death or anything in a sort of a legal realm, you had to have more than one witness. A man could not stand up and testify and say, that's my piece of property, and expect that they were going to give him that piece of property. He had to be able to pull out two or three witnesses. And in capital crimes, that was the... That was the principle. A man could not be put to death except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus alludes to that down in verse 17. Look where he says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. He's appealing to that principle, that a man cannot testify about himself and expect that to carry weight in a court. Jesus alluded to it back in John chapter 5, verse 31, which we read at the beginning. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And he's simply referring to that principle from the law, which required testimony of more than one person. So here's what they're doing. They're pulling out a legal technicality and saying, you're testifying about yourself. Nobody else is willing to testify the same thing concerning you. You have no other witnesses who can say that you are definitely the light of the world. And since nobody else can testify to that claim, we don't have to listen to that claim. We don't have to regard it as carrying any weight. Furthermore, they are insinuating that Jesus, in claiming that, is boasting. You're just saying this about yourself. And that's how they regarded somebody who gave testimony about themselves. It's a boast or a brag. They're saying to Jesus, you're claiming to be the light of the world. That is merely a boast. You are just simply bragging. Now here's the irony behind their statement. These are the Pharisees. Now in their day, anybody who spoke of their own claims or mentioned their own abilities or their own character or their own nature or spoke highly of themselves, those type of people were looked down upon because they were not considered trustworthy. They were automatically assumed to be boasting or bragging. And so they were kind of scorned. But notice who's saying this. The Pharisees. Was there any group of people in the ancient world more notorious for their own self-aggrandizement than the Pharisees? They weren't. They would look down upon people for saying things about themselves, but these are the people who did everything to draw attention to themselves. Everything. Their dress, their walk, their prayers, their giving, their fasting, everything they did in the public was geared in the public eye to draw attention to themselves and make other people think highly of themselves. And these men had the audacity to accuse Jesus of bragging or boasting. You're testifying about yourself, therefore your testimony is not true. Now when they said that, they did not mean that Jesus was necessarily telling a lie. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying, because you testify of yourself, therefore what you say is false, that it's a lie. What they're saying is, because you are testifying of yourself, and you are the only one bearing witness to yourself, therefore your testimony is not admissible in a court. It's not valid. It doesn't carry weight. We don't have to accept it. You claim to be the light of the world. You claim to be the Messiah. You claim to be God in flesh. You claim to be of one substance with the Father. But since you are alone in testifying this, we don't have to accept your claim at its face value. 
It's not admissible in a court. We don't believe that it carries the, the weight of authenticity. We are under no obligation to take what you say as true since you are alone in saying it. That's exactly what they're saying. You testify about yourself, your testimony, what you have said about yourself, we can dismiss that and we are excused for doing so because you have no other witnesses to co- collaborate or substantiate your claims. Now that's their objection. Now by the way, People use the exact same objection today to discredit the claims of Christ. They will say, yeah, I understand Jesus said that, but whether we can trust him or not, that's a different issue. Yeah, Jesus might have said that, but I don't think that there's enough evidence. I, I would like more evidence that what Jesus said was true. That is the exact same objection in today's language, and that's what the Pharisees are saying. You have said this. Give us some other witnesses. Give us somebody else who can testify that what you are saying is true. Give us more evidence. Is the problem evidence with the Pharisees? No, unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It's always due to a love for darkness. They were diagnosed back in chapter 3. Men love darkness rather than light. No amount of evidence would suffice for them. No amount of evidence can overcome unbelief. And they have more than enough evidence, and this just shows the hardness of their own hearts. Now they're standing in the face of the one who is the light of the world, and they're asking for witnesses to testify concerning him and his nature. And Jesus doesn't give it to them. In fact, we see his response in verses 14 through 18. Now keep in mind, they have, they have challenged the reliability of his testimony. They have challenged the reliability of his claims based upon the fact that he has nobody else to substantiate what he has said. Now here's what Jesus does in verses 14 to 18. He's going to turn the tables on them a little bit, but listen, he is going to give to them three facts, three facts which demonstrate that his testimony is reliable. Three facts which demonstrate that his testimony is reliable. Beginning in verse 14, and let me lay out the three facts for you, and then we'll go through them. In verse 14, Jesus shows that he, uh, the, sorry, the first fact is his heavenly origin and destination. His heavenly origin and destination. That's fact number one. Jesus says, I know where I come from, and I know where I am going in verse 14. The second thing he appeals to is the reality of the union between himself and the Father. And this is in verse 16 when Jesus says that I am not alone in my judgment, but I am the Father who sent me. That is a claim to union or unity with the Father. And the third fact is the Father's testimony concerning the Son. Verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies of me. So three things. First, his heavenly origin and destination his union with the Father, and then third, the Father's testimony concerning the Son. So let's go through them. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. But you do not know where I come from, or where I am going. Jesus doesn't deny that he's testifying on his own behalf. You notice that? But he says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. Now they've said, you're testifying about yourself. And he concedes that, because it's true, he was. He was telling them the truth about himself. And he says to them, I am testifying about myself. And listen, in a court of law with any other mere man, it would be right for you to say, we cannot regard your testimony as admissible. Jesus concedes that he's testifying on his own behalf. But here's what he says. Because he knows where he comes from and where he is going, listen, you can accept his testimony because it stands alone. Any mere man, we would say, you must have other witnesses to testify on your behalf. But Jesus is not a mere man. That's his point. I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. And therefore, he says, you can take me at my word, 
Because even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. If Jesus says something, this is the point, if Jesus says something, how many people do you need to have come and say, well, it's true because I saw this or I know this or I read that? How many people? One, two, three, four, five, how many? How many people do you need to stand behind Jesus and affirm what he says is true? None. That's his point. He's saying, I do testify about myself, but listen, I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. What I am saying is true, and I don't need any other witnesses. I need none. I need nobody else to authenticate my claims. None whatsoever. Because I am the light of the world, I need nobody else to come along and say, yep, what he's saying is true because of this, this, and this. He doesn't need authentication. You might say, well, you know, my science teacher, he disagrees with Jesus. Yeah. My college professor disagrees with Jesus. And my cultural icons disagree with Jesus. And all the celebrities I know disagree with Jesus. And every political figure I can quote disagrees with Jesus. And all the leaders of our society disagree with Jesus. Yeah. Listen, if six billion people disagree with Jesus, what does it say about Jesus' word? Absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter if every college professor on the planet disagrees with him. It doesn't matter if every scientific study in the world disagrees with him. It doesn't matter if every cultural icon, every celebrity, every sports figure, every political figure, every expert in the world, every teacher in the world. It doesn't matter. Let God be true and every man a liar. What Jesus says does not need any authentication whatsoever. And that's his point. Even if I testify about myself, which he was, he says, what I'm saying is true. You can rely upon it. You need no other authentication than this, that he said it. Is that sufficient for you? I ask you this, is it sufficient for you that Jesus would say something? If he says something one time, is that sufficient? It ought to be. Why? Because he needs no authentication whatsoever. Because of where he comes from and where he is going. That's his appeal. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. This is like an ambassador standing in front of you and saying, Look, I know I have been sent by the king, and I am here, and when I am done delivering this message, I am going back to the king. And what I am saying is true, except it is true. And he announces his message and turns around and leaves. That is exactly the nature of what Jesus is saying. I know I have come from the Father. I have come down to this earth. I stand before you. I am giving you the message. What I am saying is true. And when I leave here, when my hour has come, I am going back to the Father. Now, they didn't accept that, but if they had accepted it and understood his heavenly origin and his heavenly destination, then they would have realized his word needs no other authentication. That is what he means when he says at the end of verse 14, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You see, you Pharisees think, you unbelievers think, that I need proof, I need to substantiate what I am saying. But it's because you do not know, you do not understand, you do not embrace the reality and the truth of where I have come from and where I am going. I am no mere man, and so when I speak, it is true, even if I am the only one who says it. You get that? That's verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, it's true. In other words, the requirements of the law in Deuteronomy 17, they do not apply to Jesus. They don't. They don't. If he says it, that's it. That settles it. There is no further need for discussion or revelation or authentication or substantiation. If he says it, it is true. There is a second thing he appeals to, not only his heavenly origin and destination, but second, his unity or union with the Father. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Now, verses 15 and 16, he is describing his union with the Father in judgment. So here's what he's saying. Now, they they did not accept his heavenly origin or his heavenly destination. As much as he told them, and he did on multiple occasions, i am come from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. I've come down from heaven, I'm going back to heaven. He told this to them over and over again. They didn't accept it. Here was the reason why. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. 
And by flesh, he's not talking about flesh in a moral sense, in the sinful flesh type sense, but in the, in the, in the sense of earthly standards or human standards, by appearances. You judge according to appearances. Everything you Pharisees assess, you assess from a worldly perspective or a worldly standard. That's the idea. When they looked at Jesus, you know what they saw? They saw a man whose conception in early childhood was shrouded in scandal and mystery. And they allude to that twice in this passage. In verse 19, they say, where is your father? Over in verse 30, 41, they say to him, we were not born of fornication. Twice in this passage, they are alluding to that scandal. When they saw Jesus, when they looked at him, they saw a man whose conception and early childhood was shrouded in scandal and mystery. They saw somebody who came from the most uh, unrecognized, despised section of the whole country, somebody who hung around with fishermen of all people, tax collectors, relig- uh, 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 fanatical political zealots, and a guy like Judas. And he was a man who hung around with and, and, and spent time with sinners and dined with sinners and tax collectors. They saw nothing appealing in his message, nothing alluring in his personality or his character. They saw nothing about his, his uh, appearance that would draw them to him. And they looked at Jesus and they judging him from entirely human vantage point, entirely human standards. They said to themselves, this man doesn't come from heaven. He's not going back to heaven. They judged according to the flesh. But Jesus says, I judge no one. Now we expect, if Jesus is going to contrast himself with the Pharisees, we expect the second half of verse 15 to say, I do not judge according to the flesh. You judge according to the flesh. I do not judge according to the flesh. But Jesus kind of takes it up a notch and says, I don't judge anyone. What does he mean by that? I don't judge anyone. It's kind of a bit of a perplexing statement since verse 16 he affirms that he will judge people. And he is a judge. And he says, even if I do judge, my judgment is just because I'm not alone in it, but the I and the Father who sent me. So he does affirm that he will judge people. What does he mean in verse 15 when he says, I don't judge anyone? One of two things he could mean. First, it's possible that what Jesus means is that though he judges, he does not judge as the Pharisees judge. In other words, you judge according to the flesh. I don't judge anyone by the same standard that you judge people with. Now here's the irony. The Pharisees were the most unqualified people in all of the world to judge anything, and yet they were constantly judging people. Constantly. Jesus, on the other hand, is the most eminently qualified person to judge everything, and he is saying, I don't judge anybody by the same standards that you judge them. That's possible that that's what Jesus means. Or it might mean, he might be saying, that on this coming, right now, today, my mission is not to judge people, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. That's what he says in John chapter 3. And it might simply mean that his first appearance here, his first coming here, was not for the purpose of bringing judgment, but for the purpose of bringing salvation. Now he affirms in chapter 5 that he will judge, that the Father has committed all judgment to him, that he will speak on a day, he will raise the all of the dead, the living and the dead, will stand before him, the just and the unjust, and they will be judged by him, and the unjust will be judged and sent to hell in their physical bodies, and that will be the resurrection to eternal damnation. Jesus does affirm in chapter 5 that he will judge. But not at this coming. He does not judge. But when Jesus judges, when he does judge, it will be perfect, it will be just, it will be perfectly just. Look at verse 16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Now that is a claim to unity with the Father. And here's what Jesus is saying. Do you remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus said, the Father has been working till now and I have been working? Remember that? They criticized him for healing on the Sabbath. And what did Jesus do? He appealed to the fact that the Father was working, and he said, just as the Father is doing all of these things, so I myself am doing everything that the Father does. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. 
That was a claim to unity with the Father. And Jesus was saying back in chapter 5, everything I do is the Father doing it through me. And everything that the Father does, I am presently doing. It's the same type of claim to unity here. I will judge, and I am a judge, and when I judge, I am joined in my judgment with the Father. So that every judgment that I make is the Father's doing, and I am judging on behalf of the Father. And he is appealing to this intimate union between the Father and the Son. And Jesus is saying, I will judge. It's not going to be a judgment like you execute. But when I do judge, I will be joined with the Father, and my judgment will be perfect. Because the one who judges on behalf of God, in unity with God, and in union with the Father, gives a perfect judgment. He is appealing to his unity with the Father. How do we know that Jesus' testimony is reliable? Because of his heavenly origin and his heavenly destination. And second, because of his union with the Father. That is why he is reliable and can be trusted. Now look at the third reason that he gives in verses 16, or sorry, verse 17 and 18. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. He appeals to his heavenly origin and destination, his union with the Father, and here he describes the Father's testimony concerning himself. Now Jesus needed no authentication. He needed nobody else to affirm that what he said was true. But in spite of that, he offers up a reliable witness, namely the Father in verse 18. So here's what Jesus is doing. In verse 17, he is appealing to the principle from the law that we made reference to earlier. Let me read to you the two verses from Deuteronomy, and then I'll describe to you what this looked like when they applied it. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now here's what they would do. If you were accused of a capital crime, and you stood before the judges of the nation of Israel, and you had committed a capital crime, if there was only one witness testifying about you, you could not be put to death for that capital crime. You could not be convicted of it. Required two witnesses or three witnesses. But listen, if two people agreed in all of the details of their testimony about what you had done, you would be put to death on the testimony of those two men. It only took two men agreeing in all of the details of the crime of which you were accused for you to be put to death. Two people in agreement decided a life and death issue of innocent or guilty. That is the principle that Jesus is appealing to. Now that's the standard that they used. Now look how Jesus says that, look how Jesus uses this very principle of the law. And I'm going to read this to you with an emphasis that is in the original Greek that doesn't come out in the English. Here's how it would have sounded to their ears as they heard the emphasis. Verse 17, even in your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. Now there's two emphasis there. Your law and men are both emphasized. Now, what does that mean? Jesus could have said, "In the it is written in my law. That would have been okay for him to say. You could have said it is written in our law or it is written in the law. But what does he say? He emphasizes your law and he says, it is written in your law. And here's what he's doing. He's not overturning the Mosaic Code. He's not distancing himself from the law. But he is reminding them that they have appealed to the law which they considered as the means of their justification and righteousness, they have appealed to the law, and Jesus is turning the tables on them and saying, in the law which you love, your very law, this principle that you yourself 
have just referenced, it is written that the testimony of two men is considered as reliable and true. In other words, you can put somebody to death because two men agree about an issue. I have testified about myself. And there is another who testifies of me, and it is the Father. You want witnesses? I'll give you witnesses. I'll give you two witnesses that are not mere men. The witness of the Father and the witness of myself. Now, he has always esta- already established that he himself is not a mere man. I know where I am come from, and I know where I am going. So he appeals to himself as a witness, a valid one. And now, since they have asked for a second witness, he gives them one, and he says, the witness of the Father. The witness of the Father. Now, how did the Father testify of the Son? Did the Father give testimony to the Son? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, right? At the baptism he did that, a voice. How else did the Father testify of the Son? Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist testified of of Jesus. The works that Jesus did testified of him, and Jesus said, The works that I do are the Father's works, and the Father is doing those works through me. In all of those ways, the Father had testified of the Son. So here's what Jesus said. You want testimony? You want two witnesses? I'll give you two witnesses. And neither of these are two men. In your own law, the law to which you have appealed, you require two witnesses. I'll give you two witnesses, and they're not mere men. You will put a man to death on the testimony of two mere men. I give you myself, who have come from heaven, and the Father who testifies of me. Those are the two witnesses. Now let me ask you this. Was that sufficient for them? Those two witnesses? Jesus has put them in a very awkward position, by the way. Here's the position he's put them in. They have requested, based upon the law, testimony. Other witnesses. He has provided reliable witnesses. Now, by law, they are obligated, because he has provided these two witnesses, they are obligated to embrace what he says as true and reliable. You see, now, if they reject him and his claims, they're doing two things. They're violating the law, which required them to embrace it as true, And second, they are impugning the nature and the character of God as a witness. Isn't that brilliant? The very same legal technicality that they pulled out in order to dismiss his claims, he takes that same legal technicality and he uses it to show that his claims were true. They asked for two witnesses, he gave them. Now what do they do? There's your two witnesses. They are obligated to believe or break the law. But will they believe? They will not believe because I'll tell you what, People who love darkness would rather violate the law that they claim to love and impugn the character of God than embrace the light. They would rather do that. And that is what unbelief is, by the way. It is impugning the character of God. you realize that? When God has spoken and say, I don't believe that, and you say, I don't believe that, you know what you're doing? You're calling God a liar. And you're saying, I am in a position that I can judge what is true and false. And when I disbelieve something that God has said, or I reject that, or I refuse to embrace it and obey it, what I am doing is I am saying that me, a liar born a liar, born in iniquity, a blasphemer, that I, a sinful human being, am in a position to impugn the character of God and to judge whether what God says is true or not. That is the heart and the nature. That is the poison of unbelief. And that is exactly what these men do. did. Let me give you one other observation, and with this we close. Have you ever, and this is kind of fits in with the whole context of Jesus being the light of the world and the testimony and the issue of testimony, Do you realize that light, in a sense, testifies to itself? you realize that? Light testifies to itself. What do I mean by that? Well, do you ever walk outside on a day like today when it's 90 degrees out and the sun is out and there's not a cloud in the sky and you look up at the noonday sun and say to yourself, 
I wonder if the light, or the sun, S-U-N, I wonder if the sun is really a true light. I wonder how I know if it, the sun, tells me everything that is true and really gives me a right understanding of everything around me. Do you ever question the reality or the legitimacy of light in the physical world? You don't do that, right? What would you think of me if you walked out here and you saw me holding a flashlight, shining it up in the sky? And you and you asked me, what are you doing? I'm trying to see if I can see the sun by holding a flashlight up. These Pharisees who asked Jesus for proof of who he was was like a blind man holding a flashlight on a sunny day at high noon trying to see the sun. The sun doesn't, light doesn't need anything to illuminate it. Light illuminates. Light never requires authentication. Light doesn't require any other thing to shine on it to show us the reality of it. And that is the same with Jesus. These Pharisees asking the light of the world to give proof as to who he was is like them asking for a flashlight to see the sun. The only person who questions whether the sun is real or not is somebody who is blind. And the only people who question whether Jesus is truly the light of the world and gives them salvation are people who are spiritually blind. For those who have had their eyes opened, we didn't ever question that, do we? We know it to be true because light authenticates itself. Light testifies to itself. Light does not need illumination. Light illuminates everything else. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for such a glorious Savior, glorious and majestic in all of his person and attributes and qualities, and majestic and glorious in all that he has done for those who belong to him. Thank you that our eyes have been opened to see the light of the world. Thank you that we do not walk in darkness, and thank you that we have been given the light of life. Such a gracious Savior you are, so good to us in in bringing us to a knowledge of the truth and opening our eyes to Christ. He is precious to us, and we pray that you would make him even more so as we continue to grow in the light of truth and walk in the light of his light. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.